0: You're listening to the Derms and Conditions Podcast. Hello, everyone. It's Jim Dalrasso bringing you another edition of Derms and Conditions Podcast. And today I have someone that I've gotten to know, I think, fairly well over the last couple of years, and it's been a pleasure, at least for me. I mean, he could decide if it's (laughs) also been a pleasure for him. And it's Dr. Joe Marola, anybody that... That meets Joe. He's a very engaging guy, always has a smile, Uh, but he carries a load, a heck of a load in terms of clinical and academic responsibilities. He is associate professor of dermatology at Harvard Medical School. He's very involved also in running clinical trials, and he spends at least half of his time actually seeing patients obviously educating along with that in both rheumatology and dermatology because he's board certified in dermatology but also in internal medicine and rheumatology so all three of those board certifications he looks too young for that but uh, but you know he he he's accomplished a heck of a lot he also is one of the the directors and founders of the Master Classes course in Dermatology with Alice Gottlieb, who we all know and love and is also extremely knowledgeable in many areas, especially psoriasis and rheumatology, and Dan Siegel. So Joe, it's great to have you here today. I appreciate your time because I I know you're pretty busy.
1: Thank you, no, the pleasure's all mine. I've uh, been looking forward to this.
0: Well, we're glad we have you here. So, you know, I've been in practice for 35 years, And I paid a lot of attention and was very interested in rheumatology and always even from the time I was a student, in dermatologic manifestations of musculoskeletal diseases and and rheumatologic diseases. And I think about the words from a song uh, that Don Henley sang on a solo album, Heart of the Matter. And it says, the more I know, the less I understand. All the things I thought I knew, I'm learning again. And I feel that way a lot because I learned a lot of things about how to differentiate some of these clinical presentations, and also some of the laboratory tests. But I'm wondering, as time marches on, and it does very quickly, how much of what I learned still applies, or if there's new information, that is just slipping by me. And if it's slipping by me, it's likely slipping by uh, our colleagues. So I'd like to start with lupus, because I know you have a lot of interest in lupus, very broad area. But can we talk about the potential for drug-induced or drug-associated lupus syndromes. And when we consider those, can so can you start with that and the types that we see in clinical practice and when we might think about that?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I'm, ha- I'm happy to start with that drug-induced lupus topic. And it can be tricky, you know, and I think a lot of what we've learned, to your point, uh, a lot of what we learned is based on um, some historic understanding of really two drugs and, and what they caused as a lupus-like syndrome. And those were uh, oldies that probably not a lot of us are seeing, which are procainamide uh, and hydralazine. And, you know, those created, you know, this drug-induced lupus syndrome that everyone remembers uh, as being often antihistone-positive disease. Uh, you know, that's sort of the, the textbook learning. And, and the truth is that so many of the drugs we use, particularly as dermatologists, don't drive that <clears throat> same syndrome. And, uh, and so what, one of the first teaching points or take-home points I like to make about drug-induced lupus is it's all about which drug we're talking about. It, it, it's very drug-specific. So, <clears throat> you know, the, um, the old uh, sericitis, Arthritis, ANA positive, antihistone positive disease was procainamide, hydralazine. But we, as dermatologists, right, the thing that we're going to see uh, may be well more the minocycline induced, drug induced lupus, right? Um, those patients, very few of them, in fact, have antihistone positivity. Uh, they may have LFT abnormalities. Um, <clears throat> they may have a positive ANA with a different profile. Uh, and so, um, so that's something for us to uh, to keep in mind. So it's it's a drug specific profile. Uh, similarly with a TNF induced or say um, uh, you know other things that we may be using in the dermatology space.
0: But but these are presenting presenting primarily with a systemic presentation of 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 lupus, not the subacute that we typically see, the uh, uh, skin eruptions, very often they don't have much on their skin when we're seeing the classic drugs you mentioned, or even minocycline-associated uh, lupus, correct? That's spot on. So, so the ones I'm referring to would be a, yeah,
1: systemic presentation, fever, arthritis, you know, uh, some of the, and, and you're absolutely right that there would be very little, if any, skin manifestation in those presentations. On the flip side, if, 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 if I may, the subacute cutaneous lupus that we that we that's going to present to us we could talk about in more detail and there are some features that make us think of drug-induced versus uh, idiopathic subacute cutaneous lupus
0: so those patients will often present with the, the classic psoriasiform type eruption or photodistributed or annular type lesions in photo exposed areas typically and the drug that i think of Though I think there there have been many terbinafine, I think is the one that's been associated the most. Correct?
1: That's right. Yeah. So so in our world, terbinafine. Um, some of the you know the, the boards uh, uh, questions. You know, if anyone's uh, sitting for their for their boards again for the first time or or repeat, would be the hydrochlorothiazide. A lot of the antihypertensives, calcium channel blockers, ACE inhibitors, statins all make the list. And one that we sometimes forget to ask patients about, and this is a key one. Is PPIs, you know, proton pump inhibitors, because they're available over the counter and people may be popping those for their uh, for their reflux disease. I know I do. Uh, And uh, and they, um, you know, as my as my mom would say, you know, for for my agita and, uh, you know, and uh, and those can have been associated with subacute cutaneous lupus. Uh, not not uncommonly. So, but to your point, terbinafine for the derm, uh, TNF inhibitors, all of those have been associated.
0: Well, it's interesting because you know, haven't seen too many. Of if may, that I that I diagnose, maybe some slipped by me. But the last case of what turned out to be a, a drug-associated uh, lupus syndrome was hydrochlorothiazide, but it was built into a combination product. It's still, it you know, it's still utilized a lot, but you may not recognize it's in a combination product and it ended up, you know, being the culprit. But now one of the things that, that I've learned that I want to know if it's still true is that these patients may they often have like anti-ro, anti-la antibodies may you know positive ANA with the better testing um, that we that we have but that that serology can persist over a prolonged period of time even after there's clinical resolution of the eruption so you manage them more clinically than you do with serologic testing correct yeah. Absolutely. You're spot on. Um, you know, there's
1: a cu- couple things to unpack there. So I'll start with your row, uh, the row question. So one thing I, I love to teach our residents is that you know we expect the vast majority of these patients to be ANA positive because of course, if they're row positive, they should be ANA positive. But in fact, about 5% of the time, because of uh, sort of a side effect of the way the ANA test is done, you can be ANA negative, but still have a positive ELISA Row or SSA. And so if, I, if my suspicion's high enough, uh, I will. I, I recommend that people check in and concurrently just go ahead and order that row SSA antibody, uh, to your point. And, and then you mentioned the second thing, which I'll touch on, is um, resolution. So yeah, so the clinical um, presentation can be there for a while. The, the, the antibodies will disappear in about three quarters of patients' um, uh, you know, months after you've stopped the offending agent. So, uh, so that, that's a, that's a really, uh, really important uh, point that you, that you raise.
0: So one of the, one of the points that I'm going by, I'm going by my memory, Joe, and, you know, I appreciate the compliment, but this is one of the areas I've been interested in. So I have always read about it a lot and paid a lot of attention to it and have spoken about it some, but anyway, um, is, is that a lot of times these patients don't have significant renal disease, or a lot of the full-blown, more severe complications that we see within idiopathic s- systemic lupus, or even a drug-induced lupus that's systemic and not subacute, but they can sometimes need treatment, depending, like you stop the drug and they'll typically get better, and you might see, it might take a few months to see the, uh, a lot of the resolution, but what when you're managing them with therapies, what do you what are you often going to need? They they have polyarticular arthritis, don't they? Usually polyarthralgias in most cases.
1: Absolutely, yeah. No, you're as as always spot on. So so these folks uh, typically, yes, they they even, although they might meet some of the criteria for having SLE. Uh, especially for the drug-induced SCLE folks, they may have some mucocutaneous findings, you know, uh, oral ulcers, they may have some arthralgias, certainly they have the, the rash, of course, they may have a little bit of a fever, uh, but you're right that they don't typically have these very fulminant or, uh, you know, courses with end organ involvement. To cool them off, they may well benefit from a, a steroid taper. Um, for folks where it's dragging on, I absolutely will start an antimalarial, even if it's for a couple months, take off, you know, take the edge off, Uh, We all know, you know, uh, Plaquenil can take six to eight weeks to really kick in. So the sooner we start it, uh, the better. And then we can always pull it off, you know, a couple months in if they're looking great, feeling well. So it's a great point.
0: Now, with with our understanding of hydroxychloroquine now, especially since I would imagine you're projecting the patient's not going to be on this for months and months or even years, do you get the eye exam in this situation? Uh, Or do you, knowing that it's not going to be really a prolonged... Or therapy? Do you forego the the ocular exam?
1: So I'll will t- tell you the quick answer. I, I I do get it, and I get it not because I'm I'm worried about uh, about a short course or even you know a co- a couple year course because we know this is a prolonged cumulative exposure issue. I get it medically legally because I don't want them blaming me when they <laughs> when they find some ocular retinal complication in the future. I don't want them to say it was my Plaquenil when they had a pre-existing condition or something
0: like that. So I think it's always probably good form to have a baseline eye exam. So you're not going to be able to stand there and have the attorney defending you saying, hey, this is a brilliant Harvard professor. <laughs> That's not going to necessarily uh, seal the win uh, in that situation. Not going to hold water. <laughs> not going to <gonna> hold water. <laughs> so Joe, I want to move move on to another question I've had, because typically when we see patients that you know if they come in with 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 Gautrin's papules or you know you know it, it, the eruption around the eyes the heliotrope or you know that sort of thing and and, and you know the erythema the photosensitive erythema and we and we ask them and they they have some proximal muscle muscle weakness which a lot of times i find patients have difficulty verbalizing and we're thinking about dermatomyositis What blood tests, are there any blood tests that are really going to be helpful to us or things that might mislead us in a situation like that? You know, look, it it really still very
1: much remains a clinical diagnosis. I mean, to your point, you know, looking for classic skin findings um, supported by biopsy, right? We know it's not specific. Of course, the interface dermatitis, yada, yada. Uh, The nail fold capillary changes to me are a key thing that we should be looking for. Use your dermatoscope for that. It's a beautiful instrument to look at nail fold capillaries without any, doing anything more dramatic. The lab testing, you know, is is helpful. It, it, it's certainly not perfect. I mean, looking at the muscle enzymes, um, I get both CPK and aldolase. We know that about 8 to 12% of the time or so, you can see one elevated when the other's normal. So that can be helpful. A lot of these patients are ANA positive without other serologies being positive. And then, of course, we have these Antisynthetase antibody panels and profiles, which give you a little bit of a flavor of where the patient may head in terms of a clinical phenotype. Uh, at the same time, I wouldn't say they are uh, be all end all in terms of driving our management, uh, because I still do a lot of the same workup, and I would still offer patients a lot of the same uh, interventions. You know, there's a lot hinging, of course, on whether they have substantial muscle involvement or not. Right, whether they're in that a myopathic camp or if they truly have uh, my you know active myositis and and weakness uh, in that uh, in that arrangement
0: one of the things that i'm recalling is that sometimes these patients may have association with underlying malignancy it may already be there but in many cases it's not at the time of presentation uh, you do a thorough workup which obviously is another discussion but you want to follow them over time for the possibility of an underlying malignancy. Um, how do you do that? Do you do it based on the history? Are there some basic tests that we should be getting and making sure we look for based on the types of malignancies these patients might get? So first, you know, this is really
1: an issue more so in the adult population, right? So if you're seeing that juvenile DM, that's not really a malignancy-driven uh, subtype, Um, So in the adult, I'll tell you what I do. I I think there's not really deep consensus on this area, but um, my approach is, you know, really that malignancy risk is highest in the first three, potentially out to five years if you include ovarian cancer risk, really those first three years. Um, Age-appropriate cancer screening is a a no-brainer, of course, for patients. I would would argue that for most of these patients, getting a, a CT chest abdomen pelvis makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, one time, uh, get get a flavor for what's happening in there, you know, reassure yourself and the patient. Whether or not you repeat those yearly, I, for me, I have to be honest, it's a radiation load. You know, I, I ask patients, I do my review of systems, I make sure they're doing age-appropriate cancer screening plus. The couple other things I add on, and again, there'll be variation in what you hear from folks, I find serum tumor markers to be helpful, especially in women around ovarian cancer. I think getting like a CA-125, for example, there is some data and support for, I will do that. I think it's easy enough, simple blood test Uh, and uh, ovarian or or transvaginal ultrasound uh, has its role. I I tend to do those more than not in terms of, you know, yearly for the first three to five years, again, because of that ovarian cancer risk. Um, And I'll tell you, you know, I have had a couple of scary uh, stories, even despite all that workup, I have one of my favorite patients of all time. You know, I, I hate to say it became a, you know, you know, we get close to our patients and, and, uh, over time. And unfortunately many years of screening, and it turned out he had a head and neck, uh, squamous cell cancer. And it sort of teaches you that, you know, these things can hide, uh, in, in other places. And, you know, we, we just have to be vigilant and, and, uh, do
0: our best with history, physical and, and imaging where we can. So are the associated uh, malignancies with dermatomyositis usually solid organ tumors, or can they be hematologic, the leukemias, lymphomas, uh, things of that nature? Yeah, they, they absolutely can be lymphomas and, and other
1: uh, malignancies. Um, the majority are, are solid tumors, and again, you know, some solid tumors more than others. You know, those aerodigestive uh, adenocarcinoma. Uh, type malignancies, um, ovarian, as I mentioned, and some of those other sort of immunologically active ones uh, where we get paraneoplastic syndromes like this.
0: Very helpful. Very helpful. Um, so I have one more question and it's, it, you know, we see patients with psoriasis, obviously, and I think we all recognize that they could have limited... Of cutaneous involvement and still have psoriatic arthritis. And the association of arthritis uh, with patients with psoriasis is higher than in the general population. So we know about that association. But there are also other types of, of of arthritis, osteoarthritis probably being the most common, but even rheumatoid arthritis, that can still occur in patients with psoriasis. So can you give me Joe Morola's... Uh, you know, like a David Letterman top 10 list, it doesn't have to be 10, but how you distinguish where you're thinking about psoriatic arthritis versus osteoarthritis or rheumatoid arthritis. For example, for myself, if I see dactylitis or enthesitis, you know, pain or tendinous where the tendon goes into the bone, that's really very suggestive. Um uh, some people have said pathognomonic with dactylitis for psoriatic arthritis, but or nail changes, pitting and things of like that. But you, know, how do you break that down in terms of the distribution of the joints and even maybe some of the serologic testing?
1: Yeah, a fa- absolutely fantastic question. So I, I think I will answer it in turn. The first point I'll, I'll make is that often the big decision point for us is, is this inflammatory or non-inflammatory? It's right, they're sitting in front of me. You know, and some of the key features there are things like, you know, prolonged morning stiffness. Um, You know, it takes you 30 to 60 minutes till you're as good as you're going to be for the day with regard to stiffness, pain, et cetera. You know, the fact that actually improves with activity, right? You think about grandma wants to rest at the end of the day, right? She wants to rest her aching joints. Uh, You know, uh, folks with inflammatory arthritis, they want to get up out of their seat and they want to go for a walk. They want to move uh, after a commute, they're miserable, Um, those are little subtle hints that we're dealing with inflammatory arthritis. Of course, basic things, red, warm, tender, swollen joints, of course. And so, you know, some of those will get you from one to the other. But, you know, you're asking the version 2.0 question, the advanced question, which is how do I now tell OA from RA, from gout, from fibro, and I'll try to do my best in your top 10 list. But um, osteoarthritis, all the features I just mentioned are not there, right? This is, uh, we're missing the, the stiffness, Uh, um, You know, the, the gelling that we talked about, classical locations, right? I mean, I'm going to tell you that, you know, most older patients who present with knee pain, not surprisingly, that's probably going to be OA. Base of the thumb is almost always OA. Very classic sites, so those are things that you might think about.
0: And also getting worse with activity, correct? As compared to psoriatic arthritis, where they they're stiff if they've been they've been immobile, like driving in their car or whatever for forty-five minutes, then they have difficulty. But as they move around, um, they they have difficulty getting. Or they feel stiff, but as they move around, they get better. With with osteoarthritis, they would get worse, correct? Exactly right, and. and- Little clues like that, you
1: know, sort of tip us off uh, over time. You know, rheumatoid, we have a couple of blood tests we can check. It's a symmetric arthritis would be hands, feet. Uh, but there we have rheumatoid factor and what are called anti-CCP antibodies. And there's some radiologic differences. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, and then, of course, fibromyalgia is pain, not just at the joints and the antheses, as you mentioned a moment ago, but it's soft tissue. It's very diffuse. It's kind of everywhere. Uh, and these aren't mutually exclusive. So to make it even more complicated, I have plenty of patients who have, you know, psoriasis, or arthritis, and guess what? They have osteoarthritis at the base of their thumb, and they have some fibromyalgia. So it's it's complex. But I think if you know, if you're at least, if we're at, as dermatologists, at least screening for that inflammatory arthritis component and for what we think might be PSA. Look, I'm happy to see them in the room office and, 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 and uh, you know, do the uh, do the deeper dive on uh,
0: workup um, unless you want to own it in the derm clinic, which I think is certainly doable. So, you know, how often, um, and I've read about this, but I, you know, radiology was not was too abstract for me <laughs> even though it was black and white it wasn't black and white on the plain films it was like what are they talking about i can't see that you know uh, i like art where everything is clear i don't like abstract art but i did i did uh have one radiologist tell me that when you look you can see periosteal reaction and just articular changes on just plain films of the hands and feet that are highly suggestive of psoriatic arthritis as compared to some of the changes you see with Rheumatoid arthritis and, and especially osteoarthritis, and then the nodular changes like the rheumatoid nodules or the that we see in RA or Heberden's nodes. And you know, you don't see those in psoriatic arthritis, you see those in either rheumatoid arthritis and certainly the Heberden's nodes with osteoarthritis. Is that consistent, you know, in what you see with all the patients you're following? You know the truth is when the when those
1: radiographic findings are present uh, in PSA, it's great because there are several more specific changes. It really helps us get to a diagnosis, which is otherwise very much a clinical diagnosis. Unfortunately, you know they're only there. You know we talk about forty to fifty percent of the time or so do we see erosive or damaging type arthritis that we might see on on X ray, and so the, the the challenge here is that a, a large Majority of our patients, or at least a majority of our patients, won't have those findings, and it still remains a clinical diagnosis. When they're there, it's great; it's helpful, and, and it's confirmatory. Uh, but th- that's the challenge. Um, you know, increasingly we're using ultrasound, we're using MRI, and things that might be more sensitive uh, for some of the changes. But uh, but but plain old radiograph can be challenging. So don't. I guess my point is, don't tell a patient they don't have psoriatic arthritis
0: if their x-rays are normal. The most common finding is a normal x-ray. Good. So it sounds to me, to sum this up, that as dermatologists, we can be helpful in getting a very suggestive clinical diagnosis of psoriatic arthritis based on, typically they're going to have um, distal joint involvement on the distal joints, not just peripheral, but distal joints. And it will tend to be asymmetric if they have uh, multiple, uh, as compared to rheumatoid arthritis. Enthesitis and dactylitis and nail changes that are typical of psoriasis are very, very helpful. And then don't they have axial disease in, in some cases?
1: Yeah. So another great point. So, so up to, and listen, the the prevalence estimates are all over the place. We talk about a third of patients with psoriasis having psoriatic arthritis and probably anywhere from 20, 30% plus of those patients who have some axial or spondylitis as part of their disease. And that can be tricky. I know, look, we're all busy. Uh, Probably the last thing you want to think about uh, is asking if your patient has back pain as it is, I'm, I'm already worried that they're going to tell me that you know at the end of the visit that they're noticing some hair loss. Right, the last thing I want to do is is mention uh, ask about back pain. But the truth is, if you if you're if you're down the rabbit hole and you're and you're willing to have that conversation, it's just what we talked about, right? It's back pain that improves with activity. It's stiffness that improves with activity. It's you know a younger patient, a patient under forty who's presenting with back pain where you wouldn't otherwise expect it. All those things should be raising red flags that maybe it's psoriatic arthritis in the back, you know, and, and then, uh, and then think about referring.
0: So Joe, I know you were very complimentary, but I've always been a Joe Marola wannabe. Uh, and this was really very, very helpful. Um, I, I found it very helpful, but there's one more very important question, probably the most important Uh-oh. question when you're sitting around the dinner table with your family and you're having spaghetti and meatballs, does your family, call that red stuff we put on top of the spaghetti and meatballs sauce or gravy. Or yeah. <laughs> I, knew,
1: I knew that was coming. Hey, my, 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 uh, my grandmother, uh, you know, uh, Brooklyn Italian all the way. And my parents, uh, we talked about Sunday gravy all the time. I don't know. I think I'm, I think I'm breaking the generation gap here. My, my, uh, my, my, uh, I'm going to say it My half Korean, half Italian kids call it sauce. I'm ashamed. Uh, but here we are. Here we yeah. are.
0: Well, what could I tell you? What could I tell you? You know, we all have our preferences. Joe, it's great talking to you. We are going to revisit this another time uh, and go over more because it's it's very clinically relevant to all of us. Thank you very much for your time today and your knowledge, your tremendous knowledge. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Derms and Conditions. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at podcasts at fred.health. And most importantly, if you like this episode, subscribe to the Derms and Conditions podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. Thanks for joining us.